Hi, this is Tempter Podcast, where we discuss embedded Linux, IoT development, and in anything else we might find interesting. This is uh, your host Kim with uh, Cliff, and uh, today we have uh, a new guest with us, uh, Andy Wafa. Andy is um, with 20 years of experience in open source in a variety of business sectors. Andrew currently works for Arm Limited, uh, where he's head of their open source office and uh, also looks after engagements with open source software communities. Uh, he has held many uh, roles and still ho holds many of those roles in community entities. Currently serves as chair of Yocto Project Advisory Board and uh, sits on the um, Sen Advisory Board, as well as a longtime partner of Linaro Technical Steering Council. Welcome, Andy. Thanks, Cam. Thanks, Cliff. Uh, great to be here. So, um, Andy, we are excited to uh, have you here, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll learn a lot during this course of podcasts. So tell us about yourself and your journey, where you are today, and uh, what is keeping you busy these um, Okay, yeah. Uh, so, uh, as you mentioned in my intro, um, I've been involved in open source in one shape or another for two decades. Um, it started off purely out of curiosity as a user. Um, I was working in the aviation industry uh, pre 9 11, uh, and uh, it was just a hobby, tinker around. Um, it's all fun and games. Uh, my brother-in-law was into tech, and he suggested, look at this Linux thing. It's new, it's upcoming, it's shiny. It seems quite cool, so I gave it a whirl. Um, and after September the 11th, the uh, aviation industry, unsurprisingly, took a bit of a nosedive. So I was like, okay, let's. it's time to pull the chute out of my current gig. Um, let's go into something else. What am I going to go into? And I decided to choose IT. Uh, and I ended up um, putting myself through Red Hat's training, um, got a job with one of the local government uh, support teams. Um, and I kind of worked my way up from desktop support. I went from there to working at Sun, again, doing support. Uh, whilst I was at Sun, I was focused on Linux, whilst everyone else was worrying about Solaris. And that was a real easy gig for me because a lot of the Sun Linux customers were really switched on. They knew their stuff inside and out. They were teaching me stuff, uh, which is great. Um, and so, you know, they call up going, yeah, I've got this issue. I've got a dead hard drive or whatever else. Can you send me a hard drive? The logs are uploaded already to this place or that place, whatever else and whatnot. So it was real easy click, click, click. And so my uh, performance looked really good. I'm closing all these support tickets and everyone else is kind of on their first one and I've closed four. Um, so that, that was great. That was nice and easy. I then moved into more of a sysadmin role down in London. So I'm based about 110, 120 miles north of London uh, in the UK. Um, so I was there commuting by train each day into London. Um, Worked my way up through, you know, doing the whole sysadmin thing, data center admin, then moved across to a consultancy firm that got bought by EMC. Uh, I was doing virtualization work there. Um, I then moved over to Fujitsu from EMC, uh, handling a lot of Linux stuff uh, for a variety of different customers, both financial and, and governmental. And then from Fujitsu, I came to Arm, uh, where I've been for the last nine years eight and a half years, something like that. And, you know, I've, I've held a, a few different roles within ARM. And, uh, yeah, currently I head up the open source office, which is great because I think open source is a bit of a passion of mine. Uh, so I'm able to bring my passion to work, um, which makes the whole work balance thing much easier. You know, I can grip my teeth and, and be a bit happy when things aren't going great. Um, so that's always good. Um, but, yeah. I mean, my first real contribution to open source was the, um, appreciate it's a bit of a cliche, but I was scratching my own itch. There was, I don't know if you remember, but back in the day with Novell, 
Nat Friedman started up a project called Hula, uh, which was a, a email and calendaring yeah. app. It was before this whole JavaScript thing took off, and it was really neat, really lightweight, really cool. And I wanted to run my own email server. Mm. I thought, well, what better tool to use? Right. right. Um, so I played around, started um, getting it all there, and I was like, you know what? I hate running things from tarballs. I like neat packaged software. Right. Mm -hmm. If I want to get rid of it, I can uh, RPM minus E or depackage. You know, remove whatever else. It's all handled for me, and then it leaves a nice clean system. I don't have craft hanging around. So, okay, first thing I did was I packaged up Hula. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, let's, this is all open source and I'm supposed to give back kind of thing. And, you know, I was getting my head around the whole how you contribute back to open source at the time. And so I was like, okay, well, now that I've got a, an email server up and running, let's get the web server up and running, create the web server. And I hosted my RPMs that I mm. created. Um, and, that was picked up by some of the project guys over at Novell, and they reached out to me and said, would you mind doing this properly? And mm -hmm. three work panels went, I'm like, sure, tell me what to do, and I'm happy to kind of thing. Uh, and so that's when I started my real love affair, mm -hmm. partnership with a lot of the uh, SUSE guys. It was my, you know, Susan was my first Linux distro. Um, even though I put myself through the Red Hat training, um, mm. I used Susan personally. Uh, and so I got in and, and knew and met a lot of these guys over at Navelle and at Susan. And uh, I still count many of them as, you know, good personal friends to this day. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of how I started my involvement in open source using it and contributing it. And it grew from there. Yeah, I think this is uh, great. I mean, you have had a wide variety of experiences, and I think the journey uh, that started off, uh, you know, doing other things ended up in open source. And I think, uh, you know, that's actually how um, it happens. And scratch your own itch is actually so, so cliche and but so real that a lot of uh, developers we talk to, you know, they they have a similar uh, kind of story where they they would go and you know make some change that they didn't intend to because they had to get something going or they are interested in it and then they get pulled in and um, um, so so that's great so I think uh, you know you described how you got into open source and um, so um, your contributions so when, what were like some of the challenges that you know you ran through and um, and then how you see that you know how the occasional contributor can become a regular contributor and then maybe you know get into deeper into the project and you know maybe maintain certain portion of the project so um, walk us through that in your experience cool. how that has um so yeah i mean as i said i i kind of taught myself how to package um and it worked mm -hmm. um at least to my eyes, it worked fine. I could get this email server up and running. I could use the calendaring function, all that sort of jazz. Uh, so that was all good. Um, but I was kind of self-taught, and mm. you know, I'm I'm barely stereotypical. I don't really read the docs. I kind of look and go, mm, yeah, okay, I'm bored now. Mm. I'll work it out as I go along, and then I, I may refer back or whatever else. So of course, the corners cut and all sorts of things going on. Um, and so when, you know, the, the project guys reached out to me and said, you know, can you do this properly? I'm like, yeah, sure. Tell me what to do. I'm like, uh, okay, share this file with me. Okay. So I share the file, you know, the spec file, whatever else. Okay. Right. You need to make sure that this is done that way, or this is done that way. Um, here's a, an example of what I mean kind of thing. All right. Okay. And so I would then go back, take on board all the feedback that I've had make the changes and then, you know, send them the spec file back again. And he's like, yeah, no, you're almost there. Not quite. How about this? Um, oh, the formatting needs to be like this. Watch your white space, watch your return, all that good stuff, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into the whole Vim versus Emacs thing here. Don't worry. So. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, and so 
it started off like that, and and so with each distro release, I would create new packages, and you know, I'm practicing a bit more and, and doing it that way. Um, and this was just before uh, the open build service came about, uh, mm-hmm. and I was one of the early public people that was accessing the open build service, uh, and so I was able to really get a handle on it, and, and I was getting quite comfortable. I was able to create packages for multiple distros, multiple releases, and so I'm, I'm making a, a reasonable contribution to the project, whatever else. Unfortunately, Hula got um, killed off. By that time, I'd already made uh, connections with various people within you know, the SUSE community, whatever else, um, and so um, I wanted to help out. Uh, and so one of the things was I became part of the GNOME team for OpenSUSE. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was some. It was a semi-official thing, um, but you know, it, it was all communi- community-led. Yes, there were employees in there from SUSE, etc., and whatnot. But for the most part, um, they were just GNOME users, the same as everyone else, and, and contributors. Uh, and so I started getting more active in. Uh, the goings on within the distro, uh, and so yeah, soon, soon enough, little that I know, I was kind of, I wouldn't say in a position of power, but I was able to influence things, um, reasonably well. I then, you know, it was kind of around the time of Moblin and Migo from Intel and Nokia, right? Um, which was a a GNOME-based, really cool-looking, you know, cut-down UI for small form factor things, tablets, and the Asus EPC, I think it was, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, Upstream Mego had... They were using a weird homegrown kind of Linux base. Um, and so I was like, you know what? I like the way OpenSUSE works. Um I'm comfortable with it. I understand all the command line tooling and all that sort of jazz. So I, I thought, you know what? I like the UI. I'll take the UI off of Migo and I'll put it on top of a, a, a SUSE, an open SUSE base. Um, and I started playing with that. Um, it was kind of just for giggles more than anything else. Around the, that time, um, Nat Friedman created uh, what was known as SUSE Studio at the time, an, an easy way of building installable Im- images, whether it be for uh, VMs or hard drives, USB drives, and whatever else. Uh, so I was a beta tester for him on that. And so I started building this effectively a quasi fork of both OpenSUSE and, and Migo. And as it turned out, at about that, you know, I got something up and running. At about that time, SUSE started looking at it commercially. Um, and so they used a lot of what I'd done in my spare time in their commercial mm-hmm. products. And I had these really switched on engineers asking me for tips, tricks, hints, um, them feeding back into me suggestions of, oh, maybe if you did this this way or whatever else. And, and so this whole collaborative, collaborative thing kicked off and it was great you know i got a real buzz out of it um this is literally just something for me messing around in my spare time and i've got a company actually talking to me about it (laughs) um so that was great uh but yeah i mean for there's a lot of people that think oh this is just for me nobody else is going to care about it um and that's exactly what i did with Mega. i mean i was speaking to uh, a friend over at fedora who was kind of thinking the same sort of thing. He knows Fedora inside and out. He likes the look of this UI. What does he do? How does he go about it? So I was there helping him and, and mm. you know, so, um, and that's led to a, another long, fruitful uh, friendship. Um, but yeah, it was literally, I got given an EPC. It's a seven inch laptop. You're not going to do a huge amount on it, but this UI was designed specifically for that kind of form factor. Uh, I thought, well, I'd be cool to mess around with. So I did it literally just to keep myself amused, keep myself happy, stretch my technical prowess 
a little bit, you know, kind of push myself. Can I do this? Can, can I do that? Um, and to be honest, I never actually thought once whether anybody would think it would be useful. I didn't care. Yeah, uh, It was just fun. Uh, and I think too many people nowadays are concerned about what others will think of what they've done. I think, you know, this is part of the whole social media kind of TikTok, Instagram generation, or mentality, if you will, of, you know, everything's on show. Oh, I can't do anything. Somebody will cr critique me. Mm. They can critique me as much as they want. I don't care because I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for me. Yeah. Um, but there is a double-edged sword in that somebody will find that, okay, what you're doing is really cool, and it's they find it useful as well. Oh, but it would be even more useful for them if you did this or did that. And then they expect you to, you know, they're expecting some weird SLA where you're going to deliver a fix or an update within three hours. It's like, dude, I'm spending an hour a week maybe on this when I, you know, find that I'm struggling to sleep at night and I've woken up and I just need something to clear my head so I can go back to sleep. So I'm, I spent an hour at one o'clock in the morning or something like that. Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean? And, and so the, the expectation, and I think some people are concerned of that expectation of, well, if this does get some, how am I going to do? How am I going to cope with it? Don't worry about it. You'll, you'll work it out when you get there. I think too many people try and plan too far in advance, especially when it's doing project. If you're doing something for you, keep doing it for you. Um, and if others genuinely find it useful, they'll ask, do you mind if we help out? You know, can we look at having uh, this in a week's time? So, you know, start talking about how can that, how can you collaborate together? How can you involve other people in making change that everyone wants? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great insight actually, you know, and, you know, I was, uh, I was listening and then I saw that, you know, you described how someone helped you um, hold your hand and, you know, ask, get these, these spec files and everything sorted out. And then it came to a point where you're helping others. So it's, yeah, absolutely. it's a full circle and that's, that's a great story actually. Um, and, um, you have been involved in many, many communities and uh, we'll come back to the ones that you work today, but, um, you know, you also have, um, um, worked on open source from a administration point of view and um, and so what do you see um, what are like you know some of the ingredients if you will of a vibrant successful community uh, you know especially you know if you talk about success of Linux kernel and then you know the distros around it and maybe there were many things that gelled together but what's your take on it like what would it we what would be a a vibrant open source community and you know what are some of the ingredients in your mind so i'll just say for starters that's a real hard question um you know define a, a vibrant open source community um ultimately i think it kind of boils down to a safe open collaborative environment mm -hmm. um there's going to be unique personalities accepting the fact that you're not going to please everyone uh, as soon as you start trying to please everyone you're going to please no one so to mm. get over that hump quick right except some people will be upset but that's fine um it's a matter of understanding how and why they're upset and trying to mitigate some of that as you move forward with the project with different releases or, or whatever else, right? Mm -hmm. um, some of those people won't get over the upsetness and they'll leave. Okay, it's a shame, but that's a natural growth of, of a project. Um, so there's that um, time. A project that can magic time is a project that will go forever. Uh, you know, the getting engagement from various time zones helps, gives that impression of limitless time right mm -hmm. you know, not confined to the eight hours of, of pacific time but you'll get a couple of hours in europe you'll get a couple of hours in asia and then the rest well kind of deal with it sort of thing um but i think having a diverse mindset as well 
in the community. Yes, people are going to want, will all have a common target or a common problem. That's why they're engaged in this project, right? Um, but if you have a pile of yes people, you're not going to get challenged. You're not going to be able to grow. You're not going to expand or anything like that. You need to have some people that are going to go, yeah, that's that's great. But if I think if we did it this way, we open up to a whole new opportunity or, or whatever else, right? Um, getting people from various backgrounds, both from a, a business perspective, from a technical perspective, and also from a personal perspective. You know, a, a huge issue that I see on a daily basis, both within the wider community and also at work, is um, we're not a very diverse um, mm. space, right? In so much as we really don't have enough uh, women, yeah, uh, enough um, people of color, etc. And it's really hard to get those people uh, engaged. And one of the reasons is down to they've got no interest, right? Mm. It's seen as white guy territory, for whatever, yeah. right? Um, there are some cultural differences. So, for instance, in China, there's a lot of female engineers in China, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's probably an oddity um maybe in, in you know india is not too badly represented uh in that space as well but still it's not where it should be um certainly over in the west it's it's quite shocking uh and i think open source is a platform that can enable better diversity in technology Mm. Um, whether it be from a software perspective or a hardware perspective, you know, there are open source hardware platforms cropping up now. Um, so, you know, you should be able to get more diversity from a, a technology perspective mm -hmm. um, utilizing open source. One, one of the things I, I think is just a lot of people don't realize the opportunities that are out there. You know, there's so much opportunity and, and especially people from, difficult backgrounds or disadvantaged situations it's you know they don't have the they don't even know of the opportunities and that that's kind of the tragedy in Absolutely. Many of these situations and and actually you kind of highlighted a point there cliff of one of open sources traditional achilles heels is marketing mm -hmm. right um marketing takes a lot of time effort and crucially money so if you're a project of one, two people, uh, unless that, you know, one of those two people has a partner or, or a child that is doing a, a marketing major or, or something along those lines, you're going to be really hard pushed to, to do all the work that you do to try and get this project up and running as well as advertise it. Um, and that's one of the beauties of open source is that it has this culture of events. You go across the world, um, there's numerous events. Granted, pre-COVID, it was uh, much easier. Um, nowadays, most things are virtual. Um, but events are a very easy way for you to market your project. Right? You know, mm -hmm. Submit a paper, present, even if it's just a lightning talk, start building a bit of rapport there, whatever else. Uh, and next thing you know, you'll be going, you'll be beating people back that want to contribute and, and whatever else. Um, but that's also quite a bit where, you know, people like Red Hat, etc. Yes, um, they charge a lot of money. But one of the reasons is it's not just for support. They need to portion a large chunk of their funding into marketing. Mm. Yes, they're the leader in enterprise Linux, whatever else, but they still hammer home that message, you know, with adverts on billboards, on online, email blasts, whatever. They spend a lot of time and effort marketing. And unfortunately, that is one of the biggest Achilles heels that open source has is actually marketing, getting the word out. How do you engage with 
people in you know disadvantaged backgrounds or, or whatever else how can you let them know look if you are interested in being the next nasa engineer whether it be from a hardware or a software perspective, look, there's a hacker space down the mm. road, whatever else. There's this shared area that, you know, like-minded people are going to, you know, how do you get into some of the schools? You know, different education boards have different uh, criteria. Um, mm. In my spare time, I'm a private pilot. Uh, and so I know from entity that uh, in aviation in general aviation so aopa the airline uh, aircraft operation pilots association they have created a full syllabus for schools to take on to help teach uh, a lot of the fundamental stem requirements for the aviation industry right how can we do the same leveraging open source to grow the technology space um, and I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. Um, and, you know, we've got a lot of uh, big companies involved in open source. You know, there's Comcast, Netflix, etc., who can help create video content, engaging content in one shape or another. Um, there's, you know, Amazon, the, there's hardware vendors. So in theory, if we all club together for the common good, we should be able to fix our um shortcomings mm. um unfortunately commercials get in the way sometimes so we'll see how that works out yeah i think that's a great insight andy and uh, and i think um you know it's the next part of um collaborative evolution probably that you know might see cross organization you know c collaborations around open source processes and technology and maybe you know uh, something like comes out for larger good but i guess uh, you rightly pointed out you know where we are and perhaps where we need to go and um um, so I think you've been, you know, we come from an embedded background mainly, and, you know, we do things in enterprise, others uh, occasionally. You come from the other way around, uh, you know, so you've started off at the enterprise desktop, and I think you've been involved in the distributions, um, Linux distribution, that is, uh, which are more catering towards those uh, areas. and. And I think if you look into the open source space uh, and Linux, BSD, and all together, perhaps you know the desktop slash server distributions are the ones that are mostly used. So we see that they have done something right, you know, in terms of what they are offering. But embedded space is still fragmented, and you know um, there has been many uh, things that has been happening in this space too. But um, but how do you see, uh, you know, what would be something that, you know, would be applicable to, in, to the embedded space from desktop slash server space that could be beneficial? Um, so I think the, the biggest difference between the server space and the embedded space from an OS perspective is, um, if I just look at the Linux side of things, You've got multiple commercial vendors, uh, Red Hat, SUSE, Canonical, all in the server space, right? Mm -hmm. and there's a couple of business models at play here. You've got the pure support side of things. So all you can download it for free. You can run it for free. But if you want your updates and security fixes and all that sort of stuff, that's what you're paying for, right? Mm -hmm. You're paying a subscription for support. Uh, you're not paying a license for the software because it's open source. Um, and then, you know, the, there's aspects where, um, you know, there's an element of consultancy that you're paying for. If you need things slightly customized or you need things tuned a little bit differently or whatever else, are you paying for that rather than paying for the support or whatever? Right. Mm -hmm. um, in the embedded space, there are multiple embedded OS vendors, mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, the they've not been able to have the same pull as uh, the server space. You know, you've got people like 
uh, Windrubber, uh, Mens Graphics, and, and Montevista, etc. Um, they all create their own OS. Most of the time, it's based on the Octo project. But for whatever reason, and I don't know whether it's the support uh, or the business model or whatever else, they've not been able to have the same gravitas as Red Hat or Mm-hmm. Um, which kind of perpetuates the sort of fragmented view of the embedded space. Um, maybe because there are more proprietary vendors in the embedded space, it makes it harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas on you know the server space, it's either an open source platform, whether it be Linux or BSD, or it's Windows. You don't have the old Unix systems. Yeah really anymore. Yes, okay, there's AIX, that's the last holdout. Um, but that's getting quite niche now. That's predominantly for the IBM mainframes, Z series and stuff like that. Um, is is that a reason why there's a big difference between embedded and, and server? I don't know. Um, there's a definite difference in developer mentality. You know? mm-hmm. So developers that are coding for the enterprise space, the server space, whether it be for cloud native functions or whatever else, you know, all the shiny, shiny new containery stuff, or the old monolithic or even the slightly newer but still quite old virtualized environment, um, versus a developer that's targeting a set top box or something of that embedded ilk, um, there is a definite mind shift between these two groups of people even embedded developers that are writing more cloud native related things they still think and act differently really bizarre seeing an embedded cloud native developer sitting next to a uh, enterprise cloud native you know server-based cloud native developer they could be miles apart for all intents and purposes writing in different languages they're all writing in go or rust or whatever um, but it, it's the, the way they think, the way they act is different. It's very mm. strange. Mm. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of both kind of mentioned BSD. Um, I, you know, I, I sit on the FreeBSD Foundation now, and, and, you know, I've been engaged with the FreeBSD community for many, many years. Um, and they're a great bunch. And I actually love going to the FreeBSD events because it's a whole refreshing view and approach to things rather than the regular um, but lovely uh, Linux community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the age of free BSD developers is actually not as old as you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people that are there from day one, literally uh, the very first uh, iteration out of Berkeley. Um, but they're a real lovely bunch of people. Sometimes mm-hmm. a little bit odd, but then again, so are the Linux folks. So that's it's all good. But their approach to things is very, very different. You know, I would say FreeBSD is probably akin to Debian in the Linux space, right? I it's see. a large open source operating system. There is no one commercial vendor behind it. There's mm-hmm. lots of big players that are engaged and have a vested interest in ensuring that it continues. But I think the collaboration amongst commercial entities within FreeBSD is actually a little bit better than the way it works in Linux. That's an interesting um, observation because, uh, you know, usually um, I've heard people say that, you know, the, the, the BSD license or what have you allows you to not collaborate. And and whereas the Linux community's license allows you to collaborate or at least, you know, encourages you to co- collaborate. And maybe that's the reason. But but that's interesting, you know, that what your observations are. And I think it might be because communities have grown and understood the true value of collaboration and they find it more refreshing and more free irrespective of license. Or what's your take on it? Yeah, I think so. You, you're right. The you know so FreeBSD is what's known as uh, permissively licensed. So yes, you you don't have to give back your changes that you've made. Um, 
one of the things that the FreeBSD Foundation does do is try and encourage those that do consume FreeBSD to contribute back mm -hmm. and try and engage with a lot of these people. Now, part of the issue of the permissive license is that um, it's difficult to say who is and who isn't using FreeBSD, right? Yeah. Um, there are, there's been a few times where the foundation was surprised and even the, the FreeBSD community at large was surprised when, for instance, Sony uh, with the PlayStation, somebody managed to get into the BIOS of the uh, PlayStation 4. Oh, look, lo and behold, it's running FreeBSD, right? Mm. Um, so that was a huge surprise to a lot of the community. And, and actually, as a result of that reverse engineering, traditional, real uh, hacking for the greater good, if you will, in invert commas, um, the FreeBSD Foundation community were able to engage with Sony much better. It opened up doors that weren't open to them beforehand. And they got Sony to engage in discussions on whether it be compilers or, or whatever else. And so there was a nice to and fro. Um, Nintendo was outed uh, a year or two ago with the Switch. That too is running on FreeBSD. Mm. Um, you've got people like Netflix running FreeBSD. Uh, and one of the reasons why they're very engaged with FreeBSD is because the license allows them not to open source, they can keep certain things private whilst for the greater good. So things like, you know, they've optimized the storage stack, you know, for optimum throughput from disk to whatever um, network stacks have been optimized and whatever else they can push all of that back upstream. Yeah. When it comes to things like codecs and things where Motion Picture Association, those sort of people get very twitchy about and all that sort of stuff, that's fine. We keep that out of it, right? Mm. But everything else can be consumed by everyone. Everyone will benefit, not mm. us kind of thing. Um, and I think that's a great, great way to use something like FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. um, it's not possible really with Linux because of the licensing. And so you've got a, another Unix compliant operating system mm -hmm. that can do what you need it to do. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I've been using Linux for many, many years and I'm a great uh, supporter of it. But at the end of the day, it is a tool. You yeah. know? And, and so pick the right tool for the right job preferably try and keep it open source if you can yeah and so yeah we see how see how things go there but yeah it's, it's, it's interesting freebsd is making slow inroads into the embedded space mm -hmm. um and i wonder whether it could actually potentially make good in the embedded space because of its permissive license you know mm -hmm. a lot of embedded vendors are kind of squirrely when it comes around to gpl and, and things like that yeah, uh, and so having a platform that they can modify and, and they can choose what to give back and how to give back that sort of thing may actually be advantageous. Certainly, yeah, I think that's a um, great point, and I think um, Cliff agrees with it that you know these are all tools to meet an end, and I think you know we work on various things. Uh, you no, know, Linux is one tool in the box. Sometimes you work on RTOSes, sometimes you write bare metal apps. Um, you use one language or another language, and there are all tools. Many times we have these interesting discussions, but objectively, you know, a cool software engineer just uses them as tools and see where they fit, and that's the smartness. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to see that BSD is is still alive and kicking. You know, I haven't used it a lot, but I, I was looking for a new router recently, and I discovered the PS Sense project. Which is based on BSD, so you know there's there's examples of absolutely projects where it makes a lot of sense for security yeah. and yeah, I mean um, you know the the FreeBSD community is very much alive and kicking, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not just saying that because I'm on the foundation I have to kind of thing. Uh, it genuinely is. Um, it's because of its flexibility. It's used a lot in education, yeah. uh, so. People like University of Cambridge use FreeBSD as their 
OS for their operating systems courses and, and things like that. So um, we're able to grow some new community members through that route mm. uh, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and there is there is an ecosystem around uh, the BSD space. FreeBSD is one of many BSDs. You know, it's, it's probably the largest of the BSDs, but you've got people like NetBSD, which are, is very portable and, and, you know, I've seen people run NetBSD on literally a toaster or a coffee machine uh, yeah. because they can. Why not? Uh, you've got OpenBSD, which is very much security focused. Uh, and, you know, it was only recently that um, Linux admitted that the OpenBSD guys actually were quite sensible in how they mitigated some of the Spectrum meltdown issues that arose not that long ago. Uh, and, and so Linux has actually emulated what they've done in, in, to an extent. Um, so yeah, they, they are very much uh, alive, kicking, growing, um, and they're you know, a real welcoming community. And, and yeah, it's just yeah. fun to, to be engaged in both seeing the two different kinds of people and, and whatnot, and yeah. Yeah, I remember the OpenBSD, um, you know, the um, the email where they said, disable SMP, it's yep. it, it's going to get you in trouble. And that was a long time ago. And, like you know, I was saying, well, it is another OpenBSD post, you know, being uh, scared of things that will never happen. And here you, here you go, a few years later, so, you are yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, a very, very accurate crystal ball. Yes. So I, I literally was impressed, and I think I mentioned it to Cliff in past as well, that, you know, that was like a, a good call. And had the communities, you know, listened to it back then, maybe, you know, we would have done much better um, today. But, yeah, we, we are where we are. So, so um, yeah, so I think um, it, would you mind sharing some of the tips, like, you know, technical tips that you do, you know, in your know, daily life for our listeners to be more oh, productive? Uh, <laughs> read the documentation. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's the four-letter acronym of RTFM. Mm. That will save you a lot of time and effort. Um, the problem is documentation takes various forms. It could just be a man page, that's your documentation, or it could be a text file hidden in some weird repo. Um, that That's probably my biggest tip. Take the time to read the documentation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, from a application perspective, um, unfortunately, I, I've hit the heady heights of senior management at work now so my time for hackery has gone by the wayside um so i'm becoming a a lobotomized engineer (laughs) (laughs) things are are leaving my brain faster than i can put them in there unfortunately um Mm. from a you know give it a go don't be scared of what other people are going to say about what you're doing you're doing it for you right um for those that are just starting out in open source, um, build up a portfolio, right? We've got the tools now like GitHub and GitLab that allow you to create effectively a portfolio just like artists do. Mm. Uh, they have this big folder of, look, I've done these portraits, I've done uh, scenery, animals, whatever it is, right? Um, you now have the ability to create a portfolio of I've worked on uh, container technologies or work in the embedded space. I've worked on telco or 5G or, or whatever it may be, right? Um, if you're young and you're just starting out and you're not sure, okay, what do I want to do? Try it all out. This is the beauty of open source, right? Mm-hmm. You yeah. can have a play. Uh, yeah. There's lots of ways that you can run that code just to see if it works. Get mm-hmm. a rather high, it's $35. Um, you can do a load of stuff on that. There are multiple ways of getting access to different cloud servers for free, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to try it on something nice, big and beefy? There are ways. You just need to look for it. Um, don't be afraid to ask. You may find that 
when you do ask, somebody will be potentially short, rude, whatever else. Okay, not ideal, but don't let that put you off. Just ask again. Mm -hmm. uh, ask a few times because you might find that somebody goes, oh, sorry, I wasn't really paying attention to the conversation that was going on. Yeah, ignore him. He's just a, a grumpy old so-and-so or, or whatever else. Or, yeah, uh, what you're asking, she's best to answer that one or whatever. That sort of, you know, somebody may wake up and realize yeah. that like, keep asking don't don't be scared mm. um and just ultimately at the end of the day if you're going to get involved in open source just have fun mm. um yes you can create a career out of it if you build up a nice portfolio you go to an interview and go yeah no i've done this 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 and this look here you go kind of thing whatever oh well great you know come on board have fun yeah. um i still have fun to this day you know 20 years later kind of I'm getting paid to do my hobby almost. Mm. You know, yeah, great. Communities, different people. Um, yes, it's stressful at times. Crossing the road can be stressful at times. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Cool. So I think some of our uh, listeners might be also looking into, you know, some of the technologies to start working on or, you know, some exciting stuff that's um, crossing the horizons in open source world. So uh, any particular technology, you know, hardware, software or anything that interests you or is keeping you excited? Um, so I think my three software passions at the moment are predominantly operating systems or related to operating systems, right? So mm -hmm. I mentioned already FreeBSD, um, that they're, they're a great group of people. Um, there's lots of resources for, you know, if you want to learn about operating systems, whether it be embedded or, or not, um, look at, at FreeBSD. Uh, there's loads of educational material around that for you to, to get stuck in. Mm. Um, there's the Octo project, which is predominantly focused on embedded, but it's not solely embedded. Um, we have various people that use Yocto for their data centers, right, for everything. Um, that's uh, a really powerful tool for building custom Linux distributions for a variety of different formats and, and platforms. Uh, and so you can get to grips with all sorts of aspects. Uh, and you know, from the last one from an open source, uh, from a OS perspective, is OpenSUSE. Um, that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and and from a, a community, that there are a great bunch of people. Uh, and you know, an operating system or a distro is effectively a collection of multiple projects, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it just kind of integrates them all together. Getting involved in those projects, in, in operating systems, stuff like that, you end up getting exposed to a variety of different technologies, mm. different languages. How do you, what are the differences between packaging a Rust application versus a Go application versus a C application, right? Mm. Um, so you start learning some of these nuances about the different languages and you go, oh, actually, do you know what? That's really interesting, you know. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll dig a big bit deeper, a bit deeper. Oh, actually, that's a compiler problem. And then you start looking at compilers, and then you go off the deep end, and you turn into some uh, delightful person living in a basement working on compilers for the rest of your life or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I think they're great ways of getting access to a variety of different technologies uh, without too much trouble. Um, and, you know, you could go where all the cool kids are and, and whatever else, which is in, in the Cloud Native Computing Foundation looking at all the container stuff. But one thing to bear in mind is from a technology perspective, a lot of the stuff that's out there now is not new. Do not believe the hype. Um, containers have been around since the 60s. They were just called something different. Right. Uh, they were called uh, LPARs or they were called zones or, you know, Jails. Jails. Yeah. Exactly, right? Um, none of it's new. Same with virtualization. Uh, you know, it kind of goes round circles and, and give it a couple of years, there's going to be this new shiny thing. Oh, hang on a sec, guys. That Hewlett Packard do that back in the days. So, you know, wasn't that deck 
mm. or you know digital or whomever you know think oh yeah no that does sound kind of familiar yeah but it's all shiny now so right okay <laughs> um but yeah there's lots of things but like i say working on you know from a distro perspective you get to see these different things you get to taste them um you get to try it out you get to dig into the nitty-gritty of it that, mm -hmm. that's where i would start personally but mm -hmm. that's kind of where i did start as well so it's entirely up to you where you look at but as i said before just try and have fun yeah uh, if you don't make it fun you're not going to get anywhere Great. So I think um, it's a great advice that, you know, um, look at platforms so you have a bigger venues to look into specifics later on you find interesting. And, uh, and Andy listed a few of them here. Uh, that's really great. So um, any particular books, magazines, articles, or any podcast, anything that you listen that you'd like to recommend? Uh, I listen to Bad Voltage. I know two out of the three very well. Um, so I know John O'Bacon's your language uh, pretty well. Um, and uh, yeah, that's probably a, a, a good all round kind of technology discussion. They, you know, they dig into a variety of different things uh, and they have a laugh about it. You know, they do have fun. Uh, and occasionally they have a live event uh, where you can go and watch and record and uh, that's also a, an absolute blast, so I highly recommend it. Mm, nice. Yeah, I think we have read the book from Jono Bacon uh, probably last year, Cliff, you remember? Yes. Uh, on, on community building. Uh, he has really great insights into you know, the uh, psychology and, and culture. And how, any, uh, Cliff, you you have any final wrap-up thoughts and ask uh, Andy about anything? No, definitely been very interesting. It's fascinating to learn the history of computing because, like Andy said, a lot of it's not new. It, it kind of repeats. And, and understanding the history is, is, is really nice. So, yeah, I'm sure we could talk for hours here on all this since we've all, all been around for a bit. But yeah, I appreciate all the ideas. And no, yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Andy. And you have a nice evening, and uh, we'll talk again later. Yep, thanks. Take care, everyone. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay,